And open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We'll finish chapter 5 today. Last week we saw three very surprising interactions between Jesus and three desperate people. Jesus and a desperate fisherman, Peter. Really Peter, James, and John. A night of fishing and no fish. Uh, that's their livelihood. No, no money. And you know how far that would put you behind. A day of no work, no pay. And then he meets a leper. And the Mosaic Law calls for lepers to live in isolation, away from the community, desperate for human compassion, human love. And Jesus does something shocking and touches him and heals him. And then the most desperate of all, a paralytic. And we discussed that the man was desperate. And all three of these men, their desperation stemmed from bad theology, too. The theology of the day was that any kind of suffering, any financial suffering, any physical suffering, any illness, had to do with God's punishment for sin. And certainly, sin is the cause of all evil, death, and suffering in our world. But we know that our personal sin isn't always responsible for our suffering. The book of Job, long book of the Bible, probably the oldest book of the Bible, teaches us that. Job and his friends didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And Job's friends were convinced Job must have sinned and kept calling him to repentance. And Job couldn't find anything left to repent of in his heart and wanted to plead his case to God. But how do you plead your case to the Most High? And at the end of the day, God tells Job, look, do you know how to run the universe? Only I do. And so Job repents of questioning God's goodness and questioning his plan. Never does really find out why all of that happened to him. And so we see this paralytic. We're expecting Jesus to heal him, and he does, but he says something very shocking in front of a huge crowd. Your sins are forgiven. And this is shocking to everyone because only God can forgive sins. We can forgive one another's personal sins. You sin against me, I should forgive you. And you ask forgiveness, and if I sin against you and ask forgiveness, you should forgive me. But only God can forgive sins against God. And so Jesus, claiming his deity, really, by forgiving sins, and they saw it as blasphemy, and if it was any, any other person, it would be blasphemy. Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man, and he uses that messianic title, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. And the man was miraculously healed. And he's excited, and he goes out glorifying God. And we might assume he's glorifying God because he can walk now, but I believe he's glorifying God because for the first time in his life, he knows his sins are forgiven. And the proof is that he can walk. The walking's great, but even Jesus says, 
if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to go to heaven with one eye than to burn in hell with two eyes. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to go in to heaven, he says, crippled or lame. So what would be the point in Jesus healing a paralytic so he can walk on earth the rest of his life only to walk in his sins and walk right into judgment? What would be the point? And so we said last week, no matter what your problems are, and your problems are real, and God is concerned with your problems, he says your greatest problem is your sin problem. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, for giving us Jesus. We can know our sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we're like, of course, that's the foundation of our faith. Now let's move on to the good stuff. Folks, that is the good stuff. That is the good stuff. It puts your earthly problems in perspective. Jesus has taken care of our most important problem. Surely he'll give us the grace to handle our day-to-day concerns. And so this is only good news if you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation. This is only good news if you see yourself a sinner in need of salvation. And today we're going to look at Jesus' interactions again. And his interactions are going to be so shocking to that culture that people are going to have questions of him. We're going to see two questions in particular this morning. And those questions are going to reveal to us what's really going on in the heart of man. And hopefully it will reveal to us as individuals what is going on in our hearts. We like to sing at Christmas about God stepping into our world, taking on human flesh, living the perfect life for us, dying for us, rising again on the third day for us, interceding for us at the right hand of God. But we don't often talk about another aspect of God stepping into our world, and that'll be our focus this morning. In the person of Christ, God steps into our world and begins speaking and acting in ways that are shocking to us because they seem inconsistent with our view of the world with our explanation for how things work. And we all do this. We're interpreters of our world. And we've got to make sense of our world. And without realizing it, we begin to make a story in our mind that explains everything. And as Christians, we know the big story, and we've been talking about the meta-narrative scripture, the, the big story, and I think most of us have the big story down. But what ends up happening is the small stories of your life. You begin to think you have everything figured out. You've got your spouse figured out, your kids all figured out, you've got your coworkers figured out, you've got all the politicians figured out, you've got everyone figured out. You've got a story that makes sense. And we need God to step into our world sometimes and go, really? <laughs> this, is, this is the way you think things are. This is how you see the world. Sometimes it happens at the 
national level. We've talked a lot about multiculturalism and, and that it's, it's not a valid worldview. Not all cultures are equally pleasing to God. In as much as our culture adheres to the Word of God and the morals laid out in the Word of God, America's been an amazing culture that has been a shining city on a hill to the rest of the world. That's why people flock here and want to live here. They may not understand the reason behind the prosperity and the freedoms we enjoy, but they want it. But sometimes it takes truth to go out into these other cultures and go, really? This is how y'all live? This, this makes sense to you? You know, honor killings? This is the way you treat children in your culture? This is the way you treat women? This is normal? Not to make a joke out of it, but I think of the line from The Lion King, uh, the little meerkat Timon. He's, she's trying to eat him and he's trying to eat her and everyone's okay with this? You know, this is normal? And I, I get the picture when I'm reading and studying the scriptures, Jesus coming down into his world. We think it's our world. It's his world. And he starts living and acting in ways that make us all go, what's wrong with this guy? And he's like, no, 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 you have it wrong. This is the way it's supposed to work. There's a story coming up in Luke down the road where the widow gives her last two mites, you know, her last two coins. And often that sermon is preached, ah, look, she gave everything she had, so pass the plates again. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is what kind of sick, twisted, religious system would expect a poor widow to give up everything she has to prove that she's worthy of God's love. It's sickening to Jesus. Really? This is okay with everyone? This is how you treat widows? Literally, Jesus goes into the temple twice during his ministry, once at the beginning, once at the end, and tips over all the tables of the money changers. And that's what we need. We need him to come into our life and just tip over the tables. Wake us up. What is wrong with you? What is going on? You think this is, you think this is the way you're supposed to live? You think this is the attitude I'm looking for? So we're going to see this this morning in the story, but we need to see where this is happening in our own lives. This is why we need to come to church. This is why we need to hear the Word of God preached. This is why we need to be in small groups. This is why we need other people in our life, because sometimes you need someone to observe your life and say, really? (laughs) You really think you have it all figured out? And in those times when the group is saying, I don't think so, you've got a choice to make. You can either say, hey, all these people who say they love Jesus and love me are wrong. 
Wow, what a coincidence. All those people wrong. Or you could say, maybe I'm missing something. Sure. Once I was, was at a, a get-together and there was a group of men and something about politics had come up and it led to an interesting question of, well, why do you think people want that? What do you think's going in their hearts? Why do you think people want that? We went around the room and every man contributed. Well, you know, pe- people are, are tired of this or people are just looking for this or people want this. And it was all wonderful um, ideas. And then one particular gentleman just said, because everybody's stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, well, he said, people are stupid. <laughs> That's what he said. And I said, well, we're all people. And he's like, well, you know, not what I meant. Well, if that's your view of the world, that people are stupid, you need to put yourself in that category. We're intelligent. We're made in the image of God. When the Bible speaks of stupidity, it's speaking of foolishness, pride. In the Old Testament, stupidity was... Idolatry, really? You're going to talk to an idol? You're going to—that's your god. That piece of wood you carved out—it can't talk to you. It can't command you. It can't save you. We don't have wooden idols in our life. We we just skip the middleman and we become the idol. We think we're the smartest guy in the room. We become our own god. And the word of God steps into our world and tips over our apple cart. It rocks the boat. It offends our sensibilities. This is, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. You don't want to come here every Sunday and have all your ideas confirmed. Pretty soon you'll stop coming. What's the point? I'm not looking to offend. I'm just going to explain the story. And the story will do the job. This is what the Bible's designed to do. It's good news for those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So we're going to see two questions this morning. Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day who thought they had everything figured out could not for the life of them figure out why Jesus would eat with tax collectors. No room in their theology for this. Unimaginable. They would never do this. They would never do this. They wouldn't never go near a tax collector, let alone eat dinner with them. And so they're going to ask these questions. And it will reveal to us the waywardness of their hearts, and it will reveal to us the waywardness of our hearts as well. So you heard this morning, if you were here at the beginning of the service, and I read the scripture, that Jesus, after the scene with the paralytic, notices a tax collector named Levi. Shout out to Levi Donnell. Where are you, man? Levi is also called Matthew. You know him better as Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. He's 
at his tax booth and Jesus says, follow me. No prior relationship at all. Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. It's, it's such a... It's two verses. And we, we don't understand tax collectors back then. So we, we run right past the two verses. And you don't like paying your taxes. I don't think anyone's excited to write that check. But don't take your disdain for paying taxes and think you understand why they didn't like tax collectors back then. The church where Jennifer and I were saved and discipled, we had a friend, still keep in touch on Facebook, his name's Matthew, he's a tax collector. Get out of town, seriously. Sweetest guy you'd ever meet though, big, one of those teddy bear guys, shaves his head, Got the kind of looks like our missionary in Poland. Chris Lopoff. Just a sweetheart of a guy. You know, if he came to my door to collect my taxes, I'd be like, all right. (laughs) The the tax collectors in Jesus' day were the most hated people in society, the dregs of society. I don't even think we have an equivalent. I was asking the office today, what would be the equivalent? We're like, maybe a criminal defense attorney. But, you know, even then, sometimes somebody's wrongly accused and they need a defender. I was thinking the closest thing I could get to was the toady of a slumlord who's sent to evict a widow and all her kids right before Christmas. Sure, I'll go do it. That was these guys. No, no, no skin off my back. Business and business. You're living under this oppressive Roman regime and they kept you oppressed through heavy taxation. But to keep there from being an uprising against Rome, we'll have your own people collect the taxes. So you're busy being mad at one another. And the way a tax franchise would work is Uh, In this particular case, this was probably a toll tax to use a road. Roman roads were um, famous. It's part of the reason the Roman Empire became so great was they had this amazing system of roads to get their men and their goods all over the Roman Empire. And the upkeep of roads are not free. So it's reasonable to pay taxes, but not the exorbitant taxes that were being charged. And the way Rome would do this is you would go and buy a tax franchise, so they would kind of guesstimate how many people would pass down that road in a year and do the math and say, you need to collect this much in taxes, and the tax franchisee would pay the taxes up front and then have to collect to pay back his investment. So there was incentive and motive for making sure you collected the taxes, even if... Your best friends were using the road. You, you can't do favors for everyone. You, you'd go out of business. And so pretty soon you just had no friends. And you could 
add on top of it more than what you were supposed to collect, and they would. And Levi, it looks like, most likely was at the bottom of the rung. So this is the worst of the worst of the worst. The higher up tax collectors, the one owning the franchise, would hire a guy like Levi to do his dirty work. That way, the guy owning the franchise didn't have to look you in the face and take your money. You could get mad at Levi. He's sitting out at the booth, he's on the road, and he's probably got some thugs he's hired to keep him safe and to shake you down for your money. So it wasn't like these guys were big and impressive. We know Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? But uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. And a bunch of thugs with big sticks and pay them well. And so not only were these guys traitors and heartless, but they hung out with the worst of the worst. And in an honor-shame culture, we can assume it was hard for them to get other Jews, at least law-abiding, righteous, living Jews, to work for them. So these people were surrounded by Gentiles, scum, villains, These were not people that rabbis call to be a disciple. Remember, a rabbi calls 12 disciples. They live with them for three years. They eat with them. They walk with them. They sleep with them. They go everywhere. That's how you learn. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's not go to Sunday school once a week. It's immerse yourself in the life of Jesus until you become like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. Nobody would pick a tax collector to be their disciple. Fisherman was bad enough. Tax collector, this is shocking. So now you you understand the scene and what's coming next. Why all the confusion and the hubbub and the grumbling, it says. How could this holy man be associated with a tax collector? Now, it says Levi left everything behind. We don't know about Levi. We don't know about his background. Matthew doesn't talk much about himself in the book of Matthew. And I was asking the staff this week, knowing this about tax collectors and that in an honor-shame society, they would be the, the most rejected, the most shameful people in society... You see in the Bible, they're often listed alongside prostitutes. They get their own category. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were so bad, they got their own category. In Matthew 18, when Jesus says, Hey, if your brother sins, go to him. If he doesn't repent, take two or three witnesses. If he still doesn't listen, tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, treat him like a tax collector. Like everyone knew what this meant. Who would willingly do this job? What Jew would take this job? You got to be either desperate 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in my sanctified imagination, maybe this was the kid who was bullied his whole life. Now who's got, now who's got the power? Kid with the chip on his shoulder? Maybe it's just somebody uh, heartless? You know? Yeah, I don't mind sticking it to people. Why not? You know, like an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of guy. It's all money. This is the easiest way to make the most amount of money. I don't care if I'm ostracized. I don't know what his deal was. But if anybody needs Jesus, it would be a person like that. And sadly, those are the people that we avoid. You want to see people come to Christ. You want to evangelize. I know it makes you nervous. You get anxious about it. You know, what if, what if this cool person thinks I'm crazy? What if this educated person thinks I'm stupid for, for you know, really? Everything made in six days? Are you kidding me? You know, we have all these excuses for why we don't want to evangelize to people, but we tend to evangelize to people in our own socioeconomic bubble. And here's someone who's desperate for salvation, like the leper, like the paralytic. So think about this Levi's lot. A religious system is set up such that the really religious, righteous people aren't allowed anywhere near Levi. And everyone agrees he needs to repent. He needs needs God's mercy. But no one can go near him to tell him. What kind of system is that? The very people who need to hear the good news are the very people that the religious system that preaches the good news tells you you can't go near? What kind of God would that be that we're worshiping? I'm a, I'm a great God of mercy and salvation, except don't go near the people who need salvation. It makes no sense. But this had become normal in society. I'm waiting for Jesus to go, and everyone's okay with this? (laughs) We're not going to try to save these people? Oh, I see. You don't see yourself as sinners. So if they're going to get into heaven, they should get in the way you got in. They need to just go clean up their act and do the right thing. They know that. They don't need us to tell them that. So Jesus' choice to eat and drink with sinners is what leads to question number one. It's not just that he's a tax collector, it's he's the worst category of sinner. That leads to the first question. By the way, I know there's got to be at least one or two English people in here who are like, um, it's S apostrophe, not S apostrophe S. And because I love you, I looked it up. 
and I don't want you to be distracted. And this is the preferred way to make a possessive out of a name that ends in S. And now you can get back to the sermon because if I'm watching the slides and there's a misspelling, it's, it's over. I'm done. I'm not listening now. I've got to go correct it. So that's, that's me and my special um, OCD fallenness. So I know this is going to bug someone. <laughs> Jesus' choice to eat. Jesus' choice to eat and drink with sinners leads to question one. So Levi's so excited that salvation is possible for him. He does what anyone would do on the greatest day of their life. Throw a party. And invite the guest of honor and bring your friends and say, you got to hear this guy. And maybe part of them's like, man, I've never get to go to the good parties. I got a new friend. That's okay. There's some mixed motives there. I think he's excited, though, that his sins can be forgiven. And he wants his friends to know. And so he brings all of his tax collector friends and all of their thug friends. And God only knows who else. I mean, this must have been a motley crew. This is not the party where you take a selfie and put it on your Facebook page. And yet this is like exactly where Jesus wants us to go. Not to hang out. But how are these folks going to hear the gospel if we don't step into their world? And so they're reclining at the table with them. And you've got to understand that eating and drinking with people is like the most intimate thing you can do in that society. Breaking bread. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. They don't even have the chutzpah to talk to him face to face. They go to his disciples and they're grumbling. Great word in the Greek. Gagatso. It's uh, one of those words that sounds like the sound it makes. You know. What's the word? Onomatopoeia. Try spelling that word, by the way. That's... Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, it wasn't like this. Jesus, he's an amazing man. He's a holy man. He's a righteous man. He teaches with authority. Help us to understand why you would risk defilement. That would be a humble, honest question. We can go to God with humble, honest questions. I see this in your word. It's not the way I see the world. Help me understand. What am I missing here? That's not the way they ask this question. Because of the grumbling, we know that's not the way they asked the question. It wasn't really a question. It was an accusation in disguise. Because here's the problem in their mind. If only the righteous enter the kingdom of heaven, righteous as described by perfectly obeying the Mosaic law like we do, and staying away from the sinners and not being defiled, why would this person who claims to be a holy prophet of God risk defilement by associating with the worst sinners like tax collectors? That's, that's the question. 
we understand as Christians that God came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. So to us, we're so used to him reaching out to sinners that this doesn't offend us. It seems natural. But for them, this, this made no sense. And they were judging him for it. This man should not be doing this. This is wrong. This is the way holy, righteous people should live. Not like that, but that's the guy doing all the miracles. So Jesus answers them. He hears their grumbling to his disciples. He answers. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then this great line, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Double meaning. The literal meaning, he came to call sinners to repentance, but there's a second meaning that is sarcastic here. I didn't come to call the righteous. Right? In the same way when he tells the parable about the lost sheep and he says, the good shepherd... Leaves the 99 who don't need a shepherd as if there's 99 who aren't lost. Matthew adds this. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Quoting Hosea 6.6. I gotta say on a side note. If, if you've spent any time really deeply studying the synoptic Gospels, you realize there's this whole debate over who wrote first. And many, many uh, commentators that we trust say Mark wrote first and Matthew and Luke copied him because Mark's Gospel is the shortest and, and Matthew's is longer and Luke's longer. So I guess evolutionarily things get more complex. And I was laughing and talking to Nathan this week, and I'm like, so Matthew, the Levi, Levi, the tax collector, the one who's throwing the party and was there, had to copy from Mark. <laughs> so commentators will say, Clearly, Matthew added this little line to Mark's gospel because he had a bone to pick with the Pharisees. Or he was there and heard it. To me, that's one of those, I would love to walk into a room full of, I guess you need to do it with humility. But these, these theologian commentators who are far smarter than I am and far more studied, but I think sometimes we study so much we talk ourselves out of the obvious. Really? And everyone's okay with this? Matthew copied Mark, who had to get his information from Peter? How about Matthew was there and he heard Jesus say this? That's what I'm going with. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now, God did require sacrifice, did he not, in the Old Testament? So you're like, what? Does this contradict the word of God? No, we know there's no contradiction in the word of God. 
the sacrifice was to point us to our need for mercy, our need for forgiveness, our need for a substitute. The sacrificial system wasn't set up so that if we follow it perfectly, we earn our way to heaven. It was supposed to tell us that we're fallen, we're sinners, we need God's mercy and compassion. Therefore, we should give mercy and compassion to one another. Compassion, what a great word to take your passions and someone else's passions and and put them together. To weep with those who weep. To rejoice with those who rejoice. Compassion. You can't have compassion for someone if you can't put yourself in their shoes. It doesn't work. That's uh, an ugly form of pity. That's like the... the, uh, Pharisee in Jesus' parable at the temple who says, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like this tax collector over here. No compassion there. He doesn't see himself as a sinner who needs grace, so he can't have compassion for a sinner who needs grace. God desires compassion. Jesus will make the sacrifice. He wants compassion from us. So this leads to a second question. It's almost the same question, but now the emphasis isn't on why do you eat and drink with sinners, but the emphasis is on why do you eat and drink with sinners? How could you party with these people? Right? And Jesus is like, how could I not? Salvation has come to this house. The Bible says that there's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. Heaven is more excited. The angels are more excited when one sinner repents than the 99 who don't need to repent. Right? There's the sarcasm again. There aren't 99 who don't need to repent. But finally, somebody woke up and smelled the coffee that day and said, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need God. Have mercy on me. Hallelujah. Party in heaven. That's what we should get excited about. So they said, hey, the disciples of John the Baptist, they often fast and offer offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. Where's the piety? Where's the long face? Where's the... Must up hair. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't fast like the Pharisees do, publicly making a big show. Don't bother me, I'm fasting today. Remember when first Jennifer and I left for seminary, uh, my seminary master's asks you not to drink alcohol at all while you're there. It's not a legalistic rule. They don't teach that drinking's a sin. They just said you're here to study God's word. Your tuition is heavily subsidized by people's sacrificial giving. Let's just stay away from that. Okay. We move into this rental house in Santa Clarita, and the fireman across the street who doesn't know Jesus comes over 
his name's Tony, and he's, he's just kind of a regular guy, and he's trying to be neighborly. He's like, want to come over for a beer later? And I'm like, I don't drink beer. And off he went. Missed my chance to make a friend and talk to someone about Jesus. I could have figured out another way to say it. But sometimes in our quest to be pious and righteous, we push away the very people who need to hear the gospel. It doesn't mean live like them and fall into sin. There's an element of the church that teaches that. It's wrong. It's called contextualization. Look, if the sinners are at the strip clubs, that's where you need to hang out. No, that's not where you need to hang out. They, they eventually leave. And then you can reach them. You don't need to watch the wretched shows and listen to the wretched music they listen to so you have something to talk about at the water cooler the next day. That's not going to be good for your soul. But I guarantee they're going to have the same problems of life as everyone else. How's their marriage doing? How's their job doing? They're regular people. Sooner or later, they have to leave their fantasy world and deal with reality. That's where you can help them out. Yeah, I struggle in my marriage sometimes too. Let me tell you about Jesus. He helps us with our marriage. Why do we eat and drink with these people? Now, fasting is not a bad thing. It's a a good spiritual discipline. In fact, do you know how many times the Old Testament required people to fast? Do you know? How many times? Once a year. And only once a year. You could do it as many times as you wanted, but you were only required to do it once on the Day of Atonement. just didn't seem appropriate to be eating on the Day of Atonement. But guess what? happens after the Day of Atonement when they slaughter all the lambs. Barbecue, feast. God loves a good party. Much to celebrate. But the contrition comes first and the repentance and then the celebration for God's mercy. That's the way the whole system was designed. After you humble yourself and confess your sins and repent and acknowledge your need for mercy, you receive God's mercy, then through the sacrificial system, now for Christians, New Covenant Christians, the one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and and we celebrate. And the celebration should be um, a response to what God has done for us. If you're self-righteous and think you've earned your way into heaven, then what are you celebrating? I guess you're celebrating you. How good you are. That doesn't bring any glory to God. So prideful man took the old covenant system and turned it into a contest to see who could keep the law the best and winner take all. That's the human heart. Anyone else out there turn everything into a contest? This is me. Competitive. Everything could be a game. Everything's a contest. It's, there's a winner, there's a loser. And, and, and nobody wins at that, especially when it comes to salvation. It doesn't draw anyone to Christ. 
you may think you're walking around saying, look, everyone's going to be so impressed with my example that they'll copy me. Now, self-righteousness always pushes people away. I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to repent, but I ain't going to be like you. You know, you hear people, I don't want to go to church full of hypocrites, that self-righteous people. That shouldn't be a reason for people to stay away from church. Let's not be those kinds of people. We live righteously out of gratitude for what God has done for us on the cross. It's, it's not a game. If you make it a game, then you lose. If that's how you're going to try to get into heaven, you lose. I don't care how good you are at keeping the rules, you lose. Because the system is, that system is, you've got to be perfect. But James says, if you fail in one point of the law, you have what? Failed in the whole law. It's, it's a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. And the problem is, and their society is no different than ours in this respect, that people who tend to do well in life always seems like they have the Midas touch. Everything kind of turns to gold. They're successful. They've got the popular... No matter what city they move to, somehow they end up with the popular people and the good-looking folks. And the cool people. And you begin to convince yourself there must be something really good about me. There's something really wrong about those other people. They just can't seem to get their act together. And you don't realize that when God has stacked the deck of your hand of life with good family, intelligence, some giftedness, something... It goes to your head. And little by little, you begin to convince yourself that, well, yeah, I know what the gospel is, but, I mean, you hear the doctrine of election and you're thinking, well, of course God picked me. (laughs) There wasn't much left to do. So, it's like when you're picking teams at P.E., I'll take Joe, I'll, t- I'll take Brad. And you get down to the end and it's like, you can have the last three. No, you take them. You know, that's not how, how that doctrine works. In fact, if I'm reading the text correctly, if Jesus likes to go to the people who need salvation the most, that must be us then. Now, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Everybody needs salvation. Nobody's any closer than anyone else. In fact, the closer you are in your mind to getting yourself saved, the farther away you really are. We said last week that we're never closer to God than when we believe we should be far away from Him because of our sin. Now you're close to God. The closer you think you deserve to be to God in your own self-righteousness, the farther away you truly are. So, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see in Luke chapter 6, 
It's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's a very similar sermon. But he talks about fasting and prayer. And he's like, look, if you're going to fast and pray, these are good things. Go do them in private. Humble yourself before God. Is there a place for public fasting? Sure. Is there a place for public prayer? I hope so. We've done it multiple times today. But never to impress the world of your righteousness and your piety. So Jesus answers their second question, and he says, you cannot make the guests, the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? People get confused over the word bridegroom. That's the groom. So the groom, the best man, and, and the wedding party. How would that be at your wedding if they were like somber, morose? It's a very serious occasion. No, you, you, you party, you celebrate. It's, it's, it's the most wonderful day of your life. That's what salvation should be. And he says, days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. But not today. Salvation is here. Messiah is here. remember hearing the story about a Billy Graham crusade, and 10,000 had walked the aisle in the stadium. And what you don't realize is going on is that underneath the stadium... They've got pastors and volunteers from all over taking in those decision cards and, and praying for the whole ordeal. You know, it's a huge production. And the, the way the story goes, everyone is celebrating. 10,000 walked the aisle, and one guy said, well, yeah, but what about the follow-up? And you know probably half of those decisions were false decisions. And, <laughs> Thank you. We needed that guy. Look, anytime you see anyone take a step towards Jesus, would you celebrate? I know it may be someone in your life that are like, yeah, you know, next week, you know, this guy finds Jesus every, every week, and then he loses him on Monday. And I'm tired of getting my hopes up and being let down. Don't ever get to that place. Anyone who makes a step towards Jesus, celebrate. Celebrate wisely. Sure, that person may have fallen into a, to the habit of just liking people be excited for them. They're on their eighth baptism, you know, and you're like, okay, probably that's too much. Um, but do you drift from the Lord? You do. I drift sometimes. We do. Our hearts drift. And when our when we repent and move back to him, celebrate. Wouldn't you want people to celebrate you coming back to the Lord? Celebrate. This is, this is what gets God excited. So then he tells these two other parables, and, and they're real easy to understand when you, when, when you see it this way. The old covenant was never supposed to be a work your way to God thing. They just turned it into that. And so it was time to replace the old covenant with the new. And so Jesus says, look, don't take your self-righteous works 
and cut that out and sew it on to the new thing I'm doing. We're not doing that anymore. And don't take your old wine, keeping the sacrificial system perfectly and all the extra rules you added to it, and put it in this new wineskin that I have. Because, um, or vice versa, don't take the new wine I'm doing and put it in those old wineskins. The wineskins made out of animal flesh, leather, and the old ones get dry and brittle. You put new wine in there, it ferments, it bubbles, it expands, it bursts the wineskin, it ruins the wineskin, and it ruins the wine. So, Jesus puts it in pictures for us. Paul just lays it out for us. Don't add works to grace. Because then grace is no longer grace. By works of the law will no man be justified. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift from God so that no man may boast. And so someone may be saying, so we don't have to do good works. No, you get to do good works. Because Jesus already did the hardest work for you on the cross. So now it's your joy to do good works. It's no longer a burden to say, well, how many more of these works do I have to do before I'm in? How many more doors do I have to knock on? Or have compassion and pity for the JWs. How many doors do you have to knock on? Great to see one come to your door. How many doors do I get to knock on? How many people do I get to tell about the free gift of salvation? But it's not a free gift in their system. They're still trying to work for it. Could you imagine getting the most awesome present Christmas morning and telling your loved one, I'll pay you back, put me on a payment plan. I know this really set you back. You would be offended. But you understand the sentiment behind it. I don't want them to think that I owe them anything. I don't want them to think they can now tell me what to do or expect things of me because they gave me this great gift. Don't view God that way. He's not in heaven going, now that I died for you, all right, you owe me. Let's get to work. No, it's thank you for saving me from my sins and calling me into the kingdom. What can I do for my master? What do I get to do for you today? Who do I get to tell about Jesus? How do I get to model Christ today? They need teachers in the toddler room. Hot dog. Hot dog. Get to tell little ones about Christ. Or get to watch over these precious little ones so that maybe a young couple who's on their last thread could sit in church and hear this message this morning without worrying about a crying two-year-old. You could be that for them. Whole new perspective. Not what do I have to do, what do I get to do? What do I get to do today for Jesus? You skip to the slide that says, how then shall we live? So there are appropriate times for mourning over our sins. 
we don't party all the time. Some of you celebrate too much. <laughs> and some of you don't celebrate nearly enough. Praise God for the diversity of the body. We could each learn from one another. For appropriate times for celebrating Jesus, giving him thanks and praise for our salvation. It's always an appropriate time for humility, confession, repentance, and obedience. That, that's the path we walk, and the celebration waits at the end of that path. Never as an attempt to earn or pay back our salvation, but a celebration thanking Jesus for his mercy. Look at this uh, party we're going to have in heaven. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Greatest wedding party you'll ever attend. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Jesus gives us a wedding garment, his righteousness. And then we adorn that garment with the fine linen, the righteous acts. We're, we're the saints, the ones made holy, the holy ones. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are invited. You're invited. Are you going? If you go, you need a wedding garment. It's Jesus' righteousness. Beautiful suit. Like nothing you've ever seen before. You're going to look great. You're going to look like Jesus when he's done with you. And then knowing you're going to the wedding, you don't go roll around in the mud in your new garment. You go out and you accessorize. Maybe a little uh, scarf, maybe a cummerbund. The righteous acts of the saints. Ladies, uh, uh, go to Charming Charlie. This section, humility. This section, love. This section, compassion. You know, accessorize. He's done the hard work. He's given you his righteousness. And now the fruits of the Spirit we put on through obedience. Stop trying to clean up your act to come to Jesus. He eats with filthy sinners. And then he makes them clean. You can dine at his table today. You can feast upon his grace today. You can load up on his love today. You can savor the Savior today. Trade in the filthy rags of your self-righteousness and legalism for the wedding garment of Christ's imputed righteousness. Then don't go out rolling around in the mud of either legalism or the other extreme, antinomianism, where you say, Hey, since I'm saved, mine as well. Now adorn your new garment with the beautiful accessories of love, humility, obedience, and charity. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.